1: Repentance is also misunderstood as simply a matter of remorse, regret, sorrow over sin. Now, repentance certainly involves all of these things, but remorse and regret and sorrow over sin, those are not the same things as repentance. In
2: 1517, Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 statements to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. The document, as you may know, is called the 95 Theses. Most of those statements were quite brief, including the first one. He said when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent in Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. But what really is repentance? We'll consider that question today and for the next several days on Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where he's been serving since 1981. How often does the leader of a nation bear his soul and confess his embarrassing sins to the whole country? Well, not very often, right? But King David did exactly that when he wrote Psalm 51, gave it to the choir director, and said, "'Here, put this to music and teach it to the people so they can learn from my experience.'" That's humility. That's honesty. And that's repentance.
1: In the seventeen hundreds, King Frederick II ruled over the now non existent nation of Prussia, commonly known as Frederick the Great. You may have heard of him. He was one of Europe's great leaders at the time, far ahead of his time in granting religious freedom to his people and ending the torture of prisoners. The story is told about Frederick that One day, while inspecting a prison, each prisoner he passed cried out to him from their jail cell, I'm innocent, I was falsely accused, please set me free. But as the king, as Frederick reached the end of a long row of cells, he saw one prisoner sitting there quietly in his cell saying nothing, which was quite unusual. So looking at him, the king said, you there, have you nothing to say? All of these other prisoners tell me they're innocent. Your majesty, said the prisoner, I deserve to be here. I'm guilty of theft. Guards, Frederick shouted, seize this man. Take him out of that cell. Toss him into the street. I won't have this criminal staying here and corrupting all the innocent men in this prison. <laughs> and so this man was set free because he was honest in admitting His guilt. Now we have the privilege of beginning a study of the great Psalm 51, in which David shows us that the way to be set free from a different kind of prison is also by being honest and admitting our guilt and our sin. See, Psalm 51 is the most significant and definitive statement in the Bible on what it means to confess and repent. Of our sin. It is, folks, the classic statement in Scripture on repentance. Since the day that David penned this psalm over 3,000 years ago, believers have been using it as a guide to help them to, to understand what it means to confess their sin and to remove the barrier of their guilt before God. In short, Psalm 51 is God's statement on what genuine repentance looks like. And that's a critical issue for all of us to understand because there is so much misunderstanding on what it means to repent of sin. In fact, repentance is one of the most misunderstood issues in the church today. There are some, for example, who believe that repentance is nothing more than a a change of mind, a a new outlook, a new mental perspective, a new way of thinking. And why do they believe that? Because in the Greek language... The Greek word for repentance literally means to change one's mind. But that's not the whole picture. It's not how Scripture uses that word. It's not the whole picture to say that repentance is only a change of of mind. Because when the Bible speaks of repentance from sin, it involves, yes, a change of mind, but it doesn't stop there. It involves a change of behavior, a turning away from our sin. That is certainly how the Apostle Paul understood repentance and how he used it to explain his ministry. Let me show you what I mean. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is a prisoner. He's a prisoner in Caesarea. He's been there for some time. And King Agrippa comes. And he wants to hear Paul and hear Paul's defense. And in Paul's defense, he explains to King Agrippa... How the Lord Jesus had revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. But he also explains what the Lord said his ministry would entail. Because Paul was not only converted on the road to Damascus. He was actually given a ministry, an assignment by Jesus. Here's what Paul said in Acts 26 verse 18. Here's his explanation. Or at least his statement of what the Lord Jesus said to him concerning his ministry. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, the Lord told Paul that his ministry would involve turning people from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God himself. Now, as Paul keeps talking to King Agrippa, he declares what his ministry of turning people from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God is actually called. It has a name. It has a theological name. He calls it repentance. In the very next two verses, Paul goes on to say, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision." but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now Paul here refers to turning away from darkness and Satan to light and to God. He calls it repentance. Why? Because repentance is its more than a mere change of thinking. It involves a forsaking of sin, a change of behavior. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul commended the Thessalonians for. He doesn't use the word repentance, but he commends them for the act of repenting without using that word. In 1 Thessalonians 1, nine. Paul says that when the Thessalonians received the gospel, they, and I quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols. They turned away from their idolatry, the worship of pagan deities. They turned away from that. That's repentance. They turned to God. That's repentance. So repentance is misunderstood At a very basic level, it is is far more than just having a, a new mental outlook, a change of mind. Repentance is also misunderstood as simply a matter of remorse, regret, sorrow over sin. Now, repentance certainly involves all of these things, but remorse and regret and sorrow over sin, those are not the same things as repentance, it's an extremely important thing for us to know because there are some individuals who have deceived themselves into thinking that they have repented when in reality all they've done is express remorse for their behavior. They have regret over what they've done, especially over the consequences of their actions, and perhaps they've shed some very sorrowful tears for their poor conduct, but they have never actually turned away from their sin. In spite of their emotional distress over what they've done, they continue in their sin, and by doing so, they prove they have not repented. Now, the Old Testament presents a classic example of a man just like this, a man who did not repent over his sin, even though he had a great deal of regret for his action, he even shed, we're told, many tears in relation to his behavior. The man I'm referring to is Esau. Esau was a grandson of the patriarch Abraham, he was one of Isaac's twin sons. He was the brother of Jacob who became Israel. His story is found in the book of Genesis, where we read in Genesis 25 of an incident in which Esau was so hungry, so famished, that he gave his brother Jacob his birthright in exchange for a meal of red stew that Jacob had, had cooked. Now, why is that so significant? Well, frankly... We know this. We don't have a concept in our culture about a a birthright. It means very little to us. But in Bible times, the birthright, which normally went to the firstborn son of the family, that was a big deal. So let me explain. It meant that you got, if you have the birthright, a double portion of your family's inheritance, plus the right to be the head of your family upon your father's death, which did involve becoming the spiritual leader of your family. It was it was huge. And for Esau, who was the oldest son even though a twin, he was the oldest one, for him to inherit the blessings of his birthright would mean that he would become a very very wealthy man because his grandfather Abraham was a very wealthy man and his wealth was passed on to his son Isaac. More importantly though, Esau's birthright involved inheriting All of the spiritual blessings that God had promised Abraham when he established what is now known today as the Abrahamic covenant with the patriarch. But Esau gave it all up. He gave it all up when he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. And the reason he did such a foolish thing is because he didn't care about the things of the Lord. They didn't matter to him. The covenantal promises that God gave to his family, they meant absolutely nothing to Esau. Food, satisfying his physical desires, that's what meant the most to him, not God. In fact, in Genesis 25, verse 34, we read that Esau despised his birthright. He hated it. He didn't care about it. All of those incredible promises which we love today and we study today... All those great promises, the blessings that God swore to Abraham and his descendants, they were of no value to Esau. And why were they of no value to him? Because he was a man who had no interest in spiritual matters. Didn't care about the things of God. He was an unregenerate unbeliever who, although he grew up in a home of believers, he wasn't interested in the God of Abraham and Isaac. He cared more about satisfying his temporary hunger pains than the eternal spiritual blessings of God. However, Esau did care about his inheritance only in the sense that he could get the physical wealth as well as rule over his family. And we know that because there was another incident in the book of Genesis where Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceived his father Isaac into giving him the verbal blessing reserved for the eldest son. Isaac could not see at that time, and Jacob and his mother concocted this plan to deceive Isaac, and he gave Jacob the verbal blessing. He still wanted to give Esau that blessing. He was wrong, but God sovereignly overruled, even using the deception of Jacob and his mother But when Esau found out about this deception, he cried out with many tears, trying to persuade his father to give him the blessings that went along with the birthright. He didn't get it though. Now in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews calls our attention to this incident by citing Esau as an example of a godless man, a profane man, a bitter unbeliever and a spiritually unfaithful adulterer who although he was very remorseful, and that's what I want you to see, is very remorseful over selling his birthright. Nonetheless, he refused to repent over his sin. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 15, says this. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau now, he's warning the Hebrews, don't be like this man who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, so he wanted to inherit something of it, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it. He sought for it with tears. Now, I want to explain, this doesn't mean that Esau sought repentance with tears, but God said, no, you had your chance, you're not getting it. No, it means that he sought from his father the physical blessings involved in having his family's birthright he Didn't seek repentance. He sought the physical blessings of having the family's birthright, but is ultimately rejected by God because he was not repentant and he refused to be repentant. So he saw as an example of someone, and this is very important, someone who wants God's blessings. In their life. But they don't want God in their life. He wants the benefits of being a believer. Without the obedience and the discipline. And the commitment of being a believer. And that's why he had regrets over what he had done in selling his birthright. But he wasn't willing to turn away from his sin. Which means he did refuse to repent. Now, Esau isn't the only major character in the Bible who's singled out. As someone who had remorse but did not repent... The New Testament character of Judas... Was a man who was remorseful over his sin of betraying Christ... But he did not repent... In fact Judas was so broken... In the sense of remorseful over his sin... That he tried to give back the money... To the Jewish religious leaders that they had given him for betraying Jesus... And when these men refused to take back from Judas the money... The Bible says Judas threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and he hanged himself. So here's a man, Judas Iscariot, so remorseful and so saddened by what he had done that he actually took his own life. But he was not repentant. There's a difference. Now I'm telling you these things about Esau and about Judas because there are many professing Christians today who are very similar To these two men, they feel bad about their sin. And like Esau, they want God to bless their lives, everything connected to their lives, their finances, their marriage, their business, their children, their health. But they don't want the Lord interfering in their lives. They don't want him involved in any way. They're not interested in humbling themselves before the Lord and living the way the Lord says they are to live. They just want to enjoy life. As much as possible on their terms. And so like Esau they may feel very bad about their misbehavior. And their consequences. The consequences of what they've done. But they're certainly not interested in turning from their sin. Changing their behavior. Which means they're not interested in repenting. Now all of that is just somewhat of a background in coming to Psalm 51. Because here we see in Psalm 51 a man... David, who was repentant over his sin. This psalm was written by David when he was the king of Israel. He's a mature man. He's an older man. He's been a believer for many years. And so what this tells us is that repentance is not limited to our initial salvation experience. If you think that, you're mistaken. It's part of that because Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist said, repent, meaning you you need to turn from your sin and trust the Messiah. But repentance doesn't stop the moment we're saved. Repentance continues in the life of a believer until the Lord takes us home to heaven. And the reason for this is because as long as we are in these fallen bodies... We continue to sin. And as long as we sin, there is a need to address our sin. And the way we address our sin is by turning from it and thus repenting. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, A Christian must never leave off repenting, for I fear he never leaves off sinning. Folks, that's why Psalm 51 is such an important psalm to know and to understand, because it tells us what it means for a believer in Christ today to repent of their sin. What's actually involved in genuine repentance? And how do we know if we've really repented or we're just shedding some crocodile tears like Esau did? Now to begin with, we need to notice the heading or the inscription above Psalm 51. Because it explains to us, somewhat at least, of the historical background of the psalm which in this case is very important. Sometimes the historical background is not that important, but in this case it is important because without understanding the background of this psalm, we really can't understand much of what David has written in Psalm 51. Here's what the inscription says. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, what this inscription tells us is that David has recorded for us here something related to that terrible incident in his own life when he committed the very grievous sin of adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He then tried to cover it up by conspiring to kill her husband and thought he had gotten away with it until Nathan the prophet confronted him. And this, this is about a year later, a year after his sin. Nathan the prophet confronted him and in shame and sorrow, David did repent. Of his sin. And Psalm 51 is the inspired record of his repentance. I want you to observe the very first words of the heading, this heading above Psalm 51. It says, For the choir director. That's significant. It means that this psalm, this record of David's admission of his guilt and repentance before God, was for the official choir director. In Israel, for him to use as a song when the Jewish people gathered to worship. In other words, David wrote this psalm in order to teach people like us what it means to be truly repentant before God. Psalm 51 is not him just getting it off his chest. Psalm 51 is a lesson for us. Now think about this. How would you like it if everyone knew about some sordid sin in your life, How would you like it if a sexual sin of yours became public and the information was handed over to Joel to put up on the screen each week so that we would sing about your sin in the public worship service? Well, that's exactly what David did in putting his sin on public display, public record in the form of an inspired psalm and then giving it to the nation's official choir director. Now think about how humiliating this, this must have been to David. Not to mention embarrassing. Now listen, he's Israel's king. He was known as a man of God, a man after God's own heart. He's to be the spiritual leader of his people. He's to be their example. He is their shepherd, their human shepherd. It isn't just that he's political. He's a spiritual leader in Israel. But in admitting his sin, David validates the Bible's claim to be the inspired word of God. Why do I say that? Because human nature being what it is, if men were the primary source of the scriptures, if, if they were the authors of scripture rather than God, you know that they would have never admitted their sin. They would have never made themselves look bad. Human nature being what it is, they would have only exalted themselves by telling us about their best behavior. But that's not what they do. Because this is the word of God. So here we have David humbling himself by exposing himself as a wicked, wretched sinner. And taking us through the very uncomfortable experience of what it it meant for him to confess his sin before God. And to repent of this terrible, uh, not just one, but uh, several things that he had done wrong. Listen closely though, because here's an important reason. He put this repentance into a psalm. I said it before, let me stress it again. Here's why he was willing to go through this embarrassment and shame of it all. He did it in order to teach people like you and like me what it means to repent before God. In other words, David wrote Psalm 51 about his own repentance so that we would learn what is involved when we repent of our sin. See, Psalm 51 tells us what true repentance looks like, what elements are involved when we actually do repent. God doesn't want anyone to deceive themselves into thinking they're repentant when they haven't. And so he gave us this psalm to teach us what real, genuine repentance looks like.
2: I like how George Whitefield expressed repentance in one of his sermons. It is true, he said, a man that is born again of God may, through surprise or the violence of a temptation, fall into an act of sin, witness the adultery of David, and Peter's denial of his master. But then, like them, he quickly rises again, goes out from the world, and weeps bitterly, washes the guilt of sin away by the tears of sincere repentance, joined with faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Takes double heed to his ways for the future and perfects holiness in the fear of God. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse and the first lesson in Pastor Steve Kreloff's series from Psalm 51 about repentance. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside at Lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. If you'd like to help us keep these practical Bible studies coming, we have information on our website, or you can call 727-441-1714. Also at the website is our extensive library of previous broadcasts, which are available at no charge. Check it out at versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson inviting you to join us next time on Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve considers some of the marks of true repentance.